had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome to Transformation and Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Becky Martinez. This is our sixth or seventh radio show focused on understanding the dynamics of class and classism in organizations and dismantling. And we could not be more excited to have Dr. Alejandro Covarrubias, you know, Ale, who is actually our first guest, Becky reminded me, that actually was born into a family system with more class privilege, more similar to me and all of our previous guests but that was not their experience. So we're really hoping to really dig into sort of the dynamics of class privilege at the individual level, organizational level, what we can do to disrupt them. Um, some of y'all may know, I, I can't remember when we first met, but Social Justice Training Institute is how I have you kind of in my soul. And you've moved in to be full faculty with us. And so I get to live and work with you so many times. So the three of us will be at SJTI in just a couple of weeks. I can't wait with some other folk. Um, and then I've known you and your executive directors and your co-director roles doing significant equity, inclusion, transformational change at colleges and universities. What I'm very excited about is your just expanding your work in full-time consulting with Foundations of Hope and Justice Consulting. Um, yes. Whew. Wanting people to both critique and create socially just systems. Um, the other thing that struck me in your bio, which y'all can read on the website, but grounded in the power of critical hope. Ooh, dear friend, right. dear colleague. Mm. Yes. And um, I'm excited to be here. Ollie and I were just together a few days ago um, and we got into some really in-depth conversations around class and our family and how it still shows up and the complexity of it. And um, in what I appreciate about Ale for folks to know is that um, he very much pays also attention to intersections. Uh, and so as we think about how race and class shows up, how we think about um, class and gender show up, how we think about race, class, and gender, how they show up. Um, and, you know, we know that it is not siloed identities, that they're important to pay attention to individually and collectively. Um, and so thanks, Ale, for agreeing in a very long week um, <laughs> um, that we've had. And so we, we like to start out, we have a, you know, an array of questions and the beauty that we have in this space is to 
we have some questions and then it's an organic conversation and one thing leads to another. And then by the next thing we know is that the hour is gone. Um, so we want to start out with, so tell us a little bit about your class story. Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting because I just love being in conversation with people that I love and our friends. Um, yeah, so my class story grew up middle class. Um, and make Becky, as you mentioned, the intersections of race, class, and gender for me um, are very, are very, very like strong. And I would even add in religion. Um, so grew up in a very Catholic um, home. Both of my parents went to college, uh, both went to Cal State Northridge. My dad it was a lawyer for a long time um, and then became a superior court judge is still currently serving um, as a judge in California. My mom, had the privilege of being able to stay at home when we were younger um, and then chose to work. Um, and even some of my mom's narratives around work, particularly as she was getting closer to retirement, um, she and I, I would tease her because there was so much privilege in how she would advocate around class. Um, and so one of the stories that my mom would often tell was she had a younger, which she deemed as a less experienced supervisor. Um, and my mom was in her among her office mates was held the most class privilege and she would often tell her supervisor you need me more than i need this job and so she could always leave but then she could tell speak certain truths to that supervisor that her other colleagues couldn't um so even just watching my mom navigate class and my mom was very clear like like my husband's a judge like i don't i'm choosing to work in this space but then using that as, as a form of advocacy um, to push back and create hopefully more equity among her, her um, coworkers. And for me, I've always lived in those examples and watching my parents navigate class space, um, at, again, at the intersections of race. So one of my earliest memories of class was going over to um, one of my Thea's house. So one of my aunts, and she lived in a, in a uh, sort of a townhouse community and there was a community pool. And so we spent the day swimming and my mom bought everyone lunch and we had a great day. And as we were leaving, I just kind of said something like, next time, like you buy the lunch and we'll have the pool. And my mom's like, as we we're leaving, she's like, don't say things like that. Mm -hmm. And I had like, I just, I think I was maybe eight or nine years old and didn't realize the impact that could have on my tia and her family, right? And not because they didn't own that pool as a community pool. Um, they may not have been able to always buy lunch for everybody. Like my mom was able to do that. But it was in that moment, it was like hushing the, the class conversation. So it's like we're not allowed to talk about class necessarily um, in that space, even though growing up, it was always very clear to me that um, my, my, uh, close family, so my parents, my brother, my sister and I, that we experienced class in a very different way than many of my extended family. Um, conversations about going to college was something that was always present in my life. Um, not only that I would go to college, but that, I, that my college was going to be paid for. So my parents talked to me early on. I remember like in kindergarten, there was conversations about, you're gonna go to college. This is a part of your life. Like there was, an expectation in a sense that I was to go to college. And then when I got into high school and started applying for universities, 
my parents sat me down and said, and, and it was really, I remember this coming from my dad from, from like very, not sternly, but very clearly. He said, we will pay for your undergraduate experience. And anything after that, we'll always pay for your books, but you have to pay the rest of it. So he's like, it doesn't matter where, so apply where you want. Don't worry about the money. We will figure it out. And I knew that was a big deal. I knew that that was generous. So at the time in my mind, it was a generous thing for my parents to do for me. As I've gotten older and had a deeper analysis around class, I realized the power that that has given me in the world. Um, I was able to buy a home in this last year and a half. I attribute part of being able to buy a home because I don't have student loans and I'm paying it off still. Right? So that, that, that really long-standing thing that I thought was just really generous for my parents actually set me up for the rest of my life. And even then in buying my home, my parents were able to provide me additional money to put down for the down payment. Right. So those elements of class and, and again, like eternally grateful for their generosity and knowing that there is such privilege in that they have that money, that there's a generational piece they can pass on, which to me is always fascinating because my parents didn't they didn't grow up middle class um, or grew up maybe lower middle class. So my my grandpa, my dad's dad was um, a carpenter. He built homes and nine kids in the family. So my dad grew up very, like, he calls it frugal. Like he saves everything, pays a lot of attention um, to like how much money he spends because of upbringing, but also my grandpa knew to buy land. So he wasn't always investing in his own home all the time, although they had a very nice home. He was investing in properties. So when he passed away, my grandma, has been able to benefit from the, the rent that he, he built some apartment buildings that comes in. And then there's like inheritance coming to the family after that, because of what my grandpa did, you know, working, like working with his hands, but also building, um, you know, generational wealth in many ways, you know, so I think I was able to benefit from all these things. I wasn't aware of that as a child, you know, it wasn't a really a conversation that we had, um, around how much money I would often ask my dad, what do you do and how much do you make? And he's like, don't ask me that. Like, we don't talk about that. Mm. So money was, I never knew how much money we had or didn't have, but I knew that we could do things. Um, like we were able to go to like Disneyland once a year. Uh, we, but then our vacations would be like, we're also going camping. So there's this mix of, but even the fact that we're able to go on a vacation was a thing. So that, so that, sort of middle-classness was often kept invisible to me. I just knew we had more than some and less than others. Um, and then as I moved into higher education spaces, and this is where the intersection of race, gender, and class comes into play for me, was it was always assumed that I was a first-generation college student. It was always assumed that I come from a working-class family. Um, and so for me to, to dispel that quite often was uncomfortable because it felt like I didn't, I didn't, I no longer belong to that Latinx community because to be Latinx in higher education means you're a part of this working class community as well. So it, it helped, it, it made me feel connected and disconnected mm. 
at those intersections of multiple identities um, and having to learn how to be comfortable with, no, this is where I come from. This is, this is my identity and I'm still very much a brown man in the world as I navigate the world in, in a middle class, really now an upper middle class existence. Mm. Mm. Oh my goodness, there's so much there. Um, as, I, uh, as, your, as your dad or your parents say, uh, it didn't matter institutional type, go wherever you want, right? It wasn't like you got to go to a Cal State or stay in state. Um, and so I, I, I th- thank you for sharing that. I think that's the first time that I've heard you uh, name that um, in your grandmother's house being nice, right? And how we have language that's associated with class in like really indirect ways. Um, how, I'm curious to know for you, especially as you think, of, um, especially as you share around the, sometimes the tension um, or the assumption uh, that folks hold, um, how does that like play out in, you know, in pr- professional, right? Uh, in your, in the academic settings or the ses- the settings you navigate that have education be a part of it? Mm-hmm. I think it, it's really interesting. Um, as I work with students, there's sometimes disappointment that I'm not from a working class background. Um, and, and I think and this goes to this idea of representation that we want to like, because I look like them, right? Particularly when I work with like brown and black students, like, oh, like you look like us, like physically you look like us. But then I talk about my experience of like, oh wait, but you're not really like us. Yeah. You know, and actually the way that I've, hmm, I love doing these things with both of you because then I get deeper into my own like, <laughs> self-awareness. Um, and so, and so maybe the way that I've compensated in those spaces is that I will intentionally talk about being a second generation college student. Mm. I talk about the ways in which I stand on the shoulders of my parents who paved the way for me. And I talk about how, like, and, and this is very authentic. So this is that I am committed to this work because of what my parents have given me. Um, that I do want, like, I am an example of those that generate what generations set up in the future. Like I am that future generation um, and I am creating and I do my best to create more access for others and mentor my cousins and support them in the ways that I can. Um, but yeah, so I think when I work with students, again, it's that idea of disappointment. You're, you're not quite who we were hoping you would be. Um, and then it's always fascinating when I work with faculty members or upper administration as I introduce myself, and once I say that my dad's a judge, everyone perks up. Yeah, there's this energy, and so it's so. And then this is where that class privilege comes in. It's like, oh, not only are do you have a doctorate, not only are you now among the elite, um, educated in the space, but you come from a lineage of smart people, or you come from a, a like that you're generationally intelligent, deemed by our society. So I think there's something really fascinating about me or about that experience. Um, and, I, and I always name my father and my mother because I'm so proud of them. I'm so proud to come from them and be in community with them and learn from them. Um, and I've also seen my dad navigate class and be uncomfortable. Um, like my dad would, would much prefer to be in his backyard barbecuing and having a beer with his brothers or his sons and daughter and family 
than being at this really, you know, like what I would consider fancy function where he has to be, I mean, he wears a suit every day to work, but like to be in that like suit space, like he's much, he's just as comfortable in jeans and an old college t-shirt that we bring home that he's been wearing for 20 years. Um, and I learned that from him. Like I would much rather be in community space than in the social like networking space. I keep hearing white in my head. That's not necessarily, but I do wonder as a Latino male with class privilege, navigating mostly white people with class privilege in consulting college universities, um, it's just that intersection to me. And as you talked about your dad, um, cause I, as you said, perked up, I was like, when white folks meet you and they realize, Oh, doctorate, class privilege, then you're okay now. We can let you in. Um, and so, whew. who is right? What I love about you personally, as well as in this conversation, is the complexity of class privilege always um, balanced with the marginalization, oppression of race, and there might be others. But if, if you don't mind sharing a bit more, either as you've been consulting, training, being inside organizations, what are some other examples of class privilege either you've gotten, but also what's been around you? Because um, I think not only as both of your parents, if I track that right, said, don't talk about it. I was taught similarly, we don't talk about money, class. It's actually embarrassing. You don't um, shameful to say how much money you make, even though mm-hmm. we hold it as a badge of, oh, you're smart, you're better because you make more money, but there's still this invisibility. So I wonder if you could help me and our listeners um, kind of understand what are some of those dynamics of class privilege that we have to notice all the time? Yeah, well, even, so I'm, I'm currently making this transition out of, you know, this higher ed, professional space into being a consultant. And so this is the first time that I'm going to, what I, what I would consider is own my own business, work for myself. The way that people talk to me about owning my business, it's very different than how I see people talk to my brother who owns a barbershop about Mm -hmm. him owning his own business. So even the class piece around what is considered like, uh, you know, this like high level consulting business versus owning a barbershop. Many of my cousins, like they're, they're contractors. You know, my, many of my uncles, my, my godfather, my Nuno has been a contractor for years. You know, my dad, before he was a judge, owned his own practice, right? So even just the conversations around which businesses, mm. there's that a hierarchy of which business is better. You know, who's making, mm. what is more profitable, you know, my, my brother makes a good living. My cousin as a contractor makes, you know, a hell of a living in what he's doing. Um, but because I'm not, I'm not laboring in the same way. I have a degree that backs up what I do is in, and I have, and my brother has a cosmetology degree and, and like even what that degree means in the world. So for me, those are the class pieces around, you know, again, like, the American dream, owning a business, like that, that economic piece and then which capitalism comes into all of this, um, that I'm seeing as this elite business, this higher end business, 
um, where my brother's barbershop may not be seen in the same way. Um, and then thinking about, for me, that goes into then what can I charge? As I think about what is my services worth? What is my time worth? My experience that I get to charge a certain hourly rate versus what my brother can charge for a haircut. And the skill set that my brother has, not only to cut hair, but to engage people in conversation. He mostly, being from Oxnard, it's mostly men of color, uh, works with a lot of uh, people who we have a, a military base that's really close. So a lot of people from the military come and get haircuts with him. And so my brother's talking about politics. He's talking about, you know, you know, men talking about their kids and how they father. And, and so he's therapist, he's politician, he's community organizing, but he's not recognizing that in the same way. So people are like, I'm paying you for a haircut when really they're paying for therapy, they're paying for some education, um, but can you charge that in that space? So even that just that juxtaposition of, you know, who's, who's credible, who's knowledgeable. Um, I think another piece around the, so that's kind of that big world piece, I think more specific to the consulting um, area is, and I'm learning this, that when I'm looking at a, working with an organization and it's framed around organizational development, that that's seen as maybe more valuable, maybe more difficult than the equity and inclusion social justice work. Mm -hmm. The equity, inclusion, social justice work, it's not, you're not expected to pay, get paid as much or charge as much. It's like, it's supposed to be hard work and it's meaningful to you. Where org development, that, that's just org development. It's just part of the organization. So we should just do it, which means you can charge more for that. So even what work within the consulting world, it seems more valuable. To me, it's fascinating. Fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, I never thought about it like that. So thank you um, for the distinctions in that. Uh, and um, I'm curious to know how classes and like how the, when organizations bring you in for either one, whether it is OD work or DE&I social justice work, um, how or if, do they engage class? Mm. I'm noticing that organizations are, issues are often rooted in class, but they code it as something else. Mm. So they code it through the lens of race if they're comfortable in doing that, or it's, it's coded in communication. It's mm. coded in, um, management styles, right? So really, and this is something that I think, and Becky, as you and I talk, and I learned so much from you around class, like how we even communicate around leadership, how we communicate around the value of work. Like that's really what's embedded in, in most of the, in a lot of issues that are happening within organizations. Um, so I think it's, to me, it's many of the issues, again, are rooted in class. They're rooted in the intersections of race and class and gender in particular. Um, but they're not coded as that because there's very little language, particularly on the organizational level around class. Yeah, I see it talked about at hierarchy and rank. Mm -hmm. You talked about the significant difference in how your work is valued, your business to your brother. I mean, it's so powerful. It took me right back into 
whether it's higher ed or nonprofits, that it's often the folks who answer the phone, that greet people who might be the advisors, who are very low paid, and yet they're doing that whole range, as you said, therapy, mm-hmm. sometimes whole person parenting, and yet they're told, you do such great work, we can't do without you, but not paid and recognized by rank, money, benefits, flexibility of schedule. Um, And sometimes not even invited into the professional development space, right? As we talk about equity and inclusion, like they're still answering their phones. They're still at their desk. They might be running around supporting every logistical piece around it, but they don't actually get a benefit from that learning space that everyone, that everyone else is, right? And even, and as we talk about who is everyone else, yeah. Yeah, well, and that's where we so clearly saw um, essential, in, essential, right? In, in COVID, as we think about essential, like they did not get a day off. Um, they, you know, grow, like grocery store workers or custodians on campus or, you know, facilities folks. Um, they became this very, um, as Kathy, as you said, like distinguished, right, um, part of the organization, but their pay didn't change. They got, they probably worked more um, than they may have even before because they were the only ones around. Um, and, you know, uh, and what, what did essential really mean? Right, like let's, let's take the code out of essential and say, we need somebody on the front lines and you're, you're not going to get time off, right? You don't get to be safe at home working. Um, we didn't say any of that. And even today, as we're in this in the United States, this weird space between COVID is increasing in so many places. And yet people who are working directly with others in usually low paid, low status jobs are in still much higher risk of getting COVID or flu. And I didn't get that, Becky, till you just said that. Yeah. Classism. Classism. Hmm. Deep breath. I know that we have a couple of minutes before we're going to break. Um, any like word, like one minute zip, and then how can people connect with you, Ale, if they want to um, bring you in, have a conversation with you, contact you? Yeah. Uh, oh, so one minute zip. Um, <laughs> we'll come back. Okay. Yeah, I think, well, I think one is like classes everywhere. And, you know, so really like to, for me, it's been developing the lens and the language to talk about class because it was intentionally made invisible for so long. Um, And again, I think having folks like Becky and Kathy in my life where I can talk about it um, and work through the shame. Um, Because I think there's so much shame built into class. Um, So yeah, I think it's practice. It's it's just practice. Um, So yeah, connecting with me, um, you can connect. So my my consulting um, is Foundations for Hope and Justice Consulting. Um, you can reach me at covarubiusconsulting.com or you can reach out to me via email, um, which is AF, my last name, covarubius at gmail.com. And I will be at Encore um, in Portland in a few weeks, uh, doing a few different presentations there, um, working with some colleagues around 
supporting chief diversity officers and developing their competency. Um, another session with uh, our dear colleague, uh, Dr. Jarrell Brooks, um, really looking at expanding men of color's competency around emotional labor and how do we create space both for each other as men of color and for others. And then I'll be presenting on my uh, dissertation around um, really providing white women the competencies and the skills to support men of color, men of color through supervision. What does practice look like for you? Right, practicing individually as groups, as organizations, because uh, because that's one of the things I think is important is the action piece of it. Um, so if you could talk with us a little bit about what does practice look like for you and what would you advise folks? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, the, the gift of, of being um, in friendship with you, Becky, is that I practice, we practice a lot. Mm-hmm. I find myself practicing with you a lot because I know, one, that you have the lens for this work um, and I trust you. Um, and again, like I think as we were going to break, I kind of named it a little bit. There is so much shame around class. Um, and in fact, Becky, you, you know, this earlier week we were talking about this like that. And it, it's the shame across class identities, um, similar to race, but a little bit different. So like I think regardless of your class identity, there we're socialized around having shame to talk about money. How much money do you make? How much should I ask? for a raise or can I ask for a raise? Um, So I think for me, practice is having someone in my life that I can talk to about it um, and really begin to pick apart elements of my life around where class might show up. And again, one of the gifts of learning from Becky and others is, and this is, I think, a helpful bit of practice is expanding my lens of class beyond money. That class is so much more than just, again, how much I make or how much I don't make, how much is in my bank account, what do I own or rent? Those are great and important pieces of awareness around class, but really getting into the values below some of those things um, and doing some of the self-reflection around like what, what are basic needs? Like what, do, what does everyone deserve um, to have access to or, like with class? I think another really important practice that on the, again, on the individual level is, and again, it goes back to conversations, like as I'm engaging with friends, family members, like just trying to be mindful of like the class conversations, like the assumptions that I'm making about what people have access to, what they can do or can't do. Um, and bringing it, bringing that into the conversation or like, Hey, you know, would love to get together. Should we make dinner? Should we, do you want to go out to dinner? Where should we go? Um, what do you have capacity for? And doing that in a way that doesn't make anyone feel bad. Um, I think for me, it's also being mindful of the, the assumptions that I make as I engage with people. Um, particularly, again, this is kind of moving more into the org level, like the assumptions around what does your degree mean, your degree or title mean to like, am I, and paying attention to, am I shifting how I show up with you based on your title, based on your degree? Um, as I'm having conversations, again, in the consulting space, for me, what I'm really trying to be, get into better practice is, if I get to talk to a group of folks around the work, 
who's in that group? So I am paying attention to title. Is it everyone with doctorates? Is it everyone who are executive directors and above? Or do we have folks across the organization to, who have valuable in, input to provide? Um, so I think that's another piece around paying attention to the hierarchy that class creates. Are we assuming that you need to have a title to, to give insightful feedback in the process? Um, so I think for, yeah, again, I think the practice is really paying attention to who do we attribute value to and who, who is invisible to us. Yeah, thank you for those nuggets. Um, and uh, one of the things I think even as, Kathy, you did your, and you continue to do work on race, but when you did your show on race and, you know, we talk about race even here is like have somebody that you can talk with and trust that can be honest with and vulnerable with. Um, and that's a really difficult thing often with class because Ali, as you name those feelings, right, the shame or embarrassment or guilt that's across the class spectrum, um, particularly on the bookends um, and how do like, how do we bring things up? So an example is, so Ali and I were together and I bought some, like I bought a lot of saltwater taffy the other day. And um, I told him the reason that I do this and when I go to different places, because I know that my family doesn't have that same um, ability to do that. Um, and those are so small yet so significant. And how do those shelf in workplaces when we do conferencing, when we do travel, um, if we have to get sent out, right, to work with an organization somewhere or um, like how are those dynamics playing out um, and how can we talk about them in like real ways that are still fun and still meaningful and hard? Um, that for me is developing the capacity because then your organization develops the capacity to engage in it. And I could be wrong, so I'd like to float this idea. I find that folks in privilege by race, so white folks, if they can recognize the microaggressions, the racist daily indignities, interpersonal, that opens their heart. And they're like, oh, I don't want to be a part of that. And, and then, oh, I've done that. Um, and then they might be willing to look at the racist attitudes underneath. So I wonder if something similar, that is we're doing practice in organizations to have people tell class stories but then, and then bring it into what are the dynamics that actually exist in our organization? Those comments, those microaggressions, who's included? Kind of, you're saying you have to have a title. I'm thinking custodian's a title, but it's not in the way that we think about title. Mm-hmm. And then have people be able to tell stories and examples. Because um, what I worry about is folks in our privileged identities, our hearts aren't open. We don't care enough to stay in this for the long haul. We might go to a workshop. And so part of the practice might be how do we help people who have class privilege by growing up, by current position, um, to care enough to understand why they need to be collectively leading dismantling classism. So whether it's the cost of classism to the organization, to themselves, to the people they care about. So. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think similar to the work around race and, and Kathy, I've seen you do this with white folks is helping white folks even tell their own race story, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that, again, like, that goes back to the, like learning the language, like being able to tell my own class story 
as someone who grew up in the very middle class and upper middle class as I, as my parents moved and as I moved with them. Um, and I think arguably there's a little bit more language around race right now in the world. I think language around class is still very limited, um, particularly for those in privilege. I think, so I think that's part of the work is how do I, again, like what, like how do I even describe my class story because of the, and, and part of that is there's this myth that class is relative. Yeah. That it's like, oh, like, like relative to the people that I grew up with, I'm middle class. Relative to, like, I, I'm like, I'm not, I don't have yachts, right? I don't have a multi, like, I don't have a mansion. I don't have multiple homes. So I'm not really that. So we, we so I think in, around class, we use this sort of relative barometer to make ourselves, I have done that to make myself middle class. Mm -hmm. um, and to distance myself from the privilege that I actually hold. Um, and I think that looks a little bit different than race. So I think helping folks, I know mm -hmm. I've had to learn how to do that. Like, how do I situate myself in the privilege that I hold around class and not distance myself from like that ultra rich group and taking the time to reflect, I think this is where the, this question around, you know, what is the cost of classism? I think for many of us, class has been socialized into us in such a way that we're always aspiring to an, another level of class. Hmm. We're always, like we've been taught to aspire to like this next level of wealth and capital so that we never truly embrace our own class experience. Um, and so therefore like, we're, like it, it keeps us from being authentic around class. Mm -hmm. And then it also, in many ways, we end up acting, acting politically um, and around like liberation against our own interests because we start to vote, we start to like politicize in a way that's setting us up for that next class step versus the one that we're in. Right, because then so we, we we don't actually address the system of oppression that is impacting our class identity. We're just we've bought into the idea like we just gotta get to the next one and it'll be better. And there's such danger in that. Yeah, such danger. A few things that come uh, that popped for me. So, well, a bunch of things popped for me. So, um, as you think the reference group, right? So there's uh, Lou's social class worldview model that talks about reference groups. Uh, that we don't, uh, not until you see a different referent group um, than your own, do you know what's different. And so then you start referencing other class, right? And then, then this hierarchy can happen. Uh, and then Hearst, right, uh, uh, writes about um, people who grew up working class that shift their class, um, usually because of the academy, um, but not always there's like three people, right? Like there, there's three different um, spaces in that. So that's the straddler, like I've identified in the show. Um, there is then the loyalists. So folks who, who, who don't buy into this hierarchy, that don't buy into this, I need this middle-class life, um, who stick to their working class values. Dr. Mm -hmm. Tori Savota like writes on that. And that's really her life story, right? Like She's a professor, she's, you know, tenured faculty and, but she goes back like outside of that, her class is very much working class. Like that's 
who she's partnered with. That's who her friends are. That's who her family is. And so there isn't that taking on of that place. Right. Um, and so sometimes it's a, it can be a myth for some folks not wanting to um, attain, um, but we have this assumption that that's what it is. And so how do we like, how do we support those folks that are still in that space and want to continue to be in that space and within our organizations? And then I think about just the show, Kathy, um, in regards, so maybe to like the, to nuance it out is like, who, who listens to podcasts, right? In this, like, like, and I, I would wonder even um, like, who listens to these, mm-hmm. right? And where's the value at? Um, and so when we think about this work, uh, who has access, who has knowledge around, um, who has time, um, and like that's classed spaces. Well, and, and, and Becky, like you and I were talking about this you know, earlier this week too, like journals, like academic, academic journals. So you, like, unless you're, employed by the university or as a student paying for the university, you have to pay to get access to this knowledge, right? It's a way in which the knowledge is um, created, disseminated, but also commodified, you know? And in a lot of ways, things like podcasts, and in this, these stratas of class, right? Like podcasts become open access spaces that knowledge can be shared. It's just like, it's, I can put on, if I'm able to, my headphones on the bus as I'm going somewhere, um, right? Things like Spotify that are free, um, Google, like there's, there's ways in which this information is accessible, right? But then how do you know to find it, right? So it might be there, but like, how do I search for it? Does like, and, and so even just all those things, right? So I think it's, it's, it's so multi-layered around, you know, because we can call something accessible, but how accessible is it? Um, you know, if it's if it's just not within my realm to even know that it exists. Right. Right. And so that for me brings up the responsibility of leaders across class of origin, but currently upper middle, if not upper class, to have dismantling classism a part of the strategic agenda in the same way that dismantling racism and creating true equity inclusion is. And I do wonder if seeing how the structural changes around dismantling racism and building up capacity to recognize and engage and might be useful. And my guess is there could be places on campus where folks and other organizations experience marginalization by class can gather that affinity space. What I wonder is anybody ever heard of a privilege group? So like we do white accountability groups, Mm -hmm. have you ever seen an organization that is not doing this or let us help you? But leaders, managers who are currently in class privileged positions doing your deep work so that you recognize how you perpetuate classism individually, as well as climate, culture, policies, practices, and then what we need to do collaboratively with everyone to change. Have you seen anything close to that? I haven't seen it. Because we're doing it with white folk. And that's a lot. Of, so call to listeners. Could be a next step. It could be. That would be interesting. I Thanks, Kathy. I had never thought about that. I was like, how would I even run that? 
Um, like what would be the structure? What would be the prompts? How do you create trust? How do you get out of shame and guilt? Um, how do you give language? I know class action does work across class, but I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. It would be fun to pilot something. Mm-hmm. Well, and Becky, like you had mentioned earlier this week too, like that you had been in a space that was more cross-class and the difficulty of holding that space. I don't know if you want to comment on that and like what that might be then to focus just on one group, one class group versus another. Yeah, thank Yeah. You know, I've been working with a, a campus that we did five sessions on class and it was um, a variety of anybody from facilities to the title director. Um, and it is like it, it was a struggle in that space. Right. So when we talk about pay or access, we have folks with degrees that get paid. Um well enough and have retirement and aren't laborers in the same physical way. And um, the, so I, I don't know, I, I, you're frozen on my end, but I'm going to continue talking. You're good. Uh, okay. <laughs> the, um, the, I think the folks where their class of origin in their current class was working class were like, we just want tangibles. we like, we want to talk about it in more direct ways. Um and it's a, it's a hard space to hold because there has been so, like, it's so, it can be so very obvious in a hierarchical system, um, how it plays itself out. And so needing to work through, like giving language, but skills to be able to talk about it. Um, yeah, it, I think it's just a, it's a hard one, right? Because it is the directly haves and have nots and then there's the spectrum of what in that looks like and what that feels like and how that plays out and who has value and voice uh yeah yeah so then that has me thinking right like on the organizational level like how class shapes what i think i need for my organization like the, like the needs of, you know, just different things. Are, and like, and I would, I, would, I would have to think about that more, right? How has, what I, what I feel like I need as an executive director, how is that different than what I thought I needed as an assistant director? What I thought I needed as a graduate intern and how class may have been part of the, what I, what I thought I just deserved in that role. You know, and the access that comes with those different positions. Because um, now I'm even thinking about the um, how I've negotiated job offers and job nego- and job negotiations as I've moved up, mm-hmm. and the conversations around what I should ask for or what I could ask for at those different levels. Um, and so, it'd be, and, and that sets the the president's for then how should I be treated for the rest of the time in this role at the institution, mm-hmm. you know, and all the coded um, and unwritten rules about job negotiations, but those really, again, those set the foundations for what I should expect for the rest of my time within this organization. Do I even get to negotiate for a job salary? Yeah. Or am I assuming, or am I told I should just be happy that I got this much mm-hmm. or that I'm happy that I just got a job. 
The yeah. word deserve. Oh, sorry. Go back. No, no. I was going to say uh, we had Sanja on, Dr. Sanja Ardois, and she talked about that same thing, right? Like how do organizations make transparent salary um, and just be really upfront with it so that there's even not the need to the, ne- have the skill to negotiate, um, but like how do we create a system where that isn't half like be upfront. Here's this, here's this, like not even salary range, but here's the salary. Um, because people may not be skilled to know that they can even do that. Hadn't been coached. Right. So part of this class capital is who got coached, mentored, networked, encouraged, who's assumed we're going to have to negotiate by class privilege, often race privilege, white privilege, and then who is treated with dismissal of how dare you. The other thing that comes to me is I was thinking the word deserve and and you said it, Ale, about someone with very little class privilege access. I don't deserve much more. I wonder when people shift from, I don't deserve much to how dare you treat me that way. I deserve this. Mm -hmm. I deserve. And that sense of entitlement and I deserve more than I'm getting, I think is part of upper middle class elitist Whew. Yeah. Well, and that, and to me, that goes back to the job negotiation piece because it's at a certain point, it's not just my salary, it's my clothes um, stipend, my car stipend. You know, am I, will I get a rent free house for the six months at this level? Um, all those like, elements of privilege. I mean, that's true privilege, right? I, like not only are you going to pay my salary, but you're also going to give me a house as I'm in this position um, and how that's different than as a resident director. And this is a very higher ed example, like we're paying for your room because you work here and you're going to live here and we need you to address crisis versus no, we're just going to give you a house um, near campus. Right. And so the, so the, and it, that looks different across the hierarchy. We're not offering that to everyone. And at a certain point, Again, that entitlement kicks in of like, so wait, you don't have a house for me? Like, why, why would I even entertain this job offer? Um, my last three positions gave me that, you know? And so like, to me, it's those, those elements um, that we really need to pay attention to. And that happens as you move up the hierarchy. And you internalize it, right? Like there's all of this mm-hmm. internalization. So Kathy, as I hear the, when do we switch from I'll take what I can get to I deserve? Like there's so much like inter- like gener- like generational internalization, oppression or privilege that mm-hmm. takes so much deep work to unlearn. Um, Cause I can even show up in that. Yeah, this is what I'm, this is my fee, um, but I'm willing to negotiate and at least I get to do good work. Um, and it's not as hard as um, where I have caught like consultant colleagues who are like, nope, this is, this is it for me. And my internal reaction is, are you serious? Yeah. I know. I just got an, I don't know if it's a real insight, but there's something about white privilege that all white people have across. It's different across class, but it, but there's something about class privilege, I wonder, that as you get into the senior leadership, it is so 
so much privilege compared to a manager who's middle class. So I, new thought, I don't know, but it feels more individual that I'm going to hold on to what I got as opposed to maybe it's me that I just see how I benefit from dismantling racism as a white person. I mean, in my soul, I see how I benefit. I don't know yet how to convince people with current class privilege and or from growing up what's in their self-interest to dismantle classism in the organization. Because that that, uh, zero-sum game, if we really share resources equitably, that means leaders are going to be making less money and have less benefits. Maybe. This feels different somehow. I think, and for me, particularly within a U.S. context, and I'm going to go heady because I'm a nerd, um, <laughs> but like it's, it's so wrapped up into capitalism, right? So the, the capitalist way we think, it, it, capitalism cuts across race differently, it cuts across gender. It's it, in some ways, um, like systems of oppression are enacted through capitalism, Right, as we think about access to resources, opportunity space, it's, it's rooted in the way in which capitalism functions. So it's so much harder to understand how it may show up on the individual level. Again, it's the language piece um, that I think we really need, again, to figure out because it is like it's, again, we're, we're, I, I have been so deeply socialized to not undo the system of capitalism. I've been socialized to buy into it and be a consumer of it and learn how to commodify everything that I do so that I can get paid more. And that the way that I undo classism is by achieving a higher class, by achieving more access. Like to me, like that's like, as I've unpacked a lot, like that's been the message of how do you solve this for myself? Um, So Mm -hmm. learning how to undo that, it's really complicated. Um, but I think about the environmental impact of capitalism, I mean, like the environment, like the, the human impact of, of classism is so mm. painful and detrimental to our like physical, emotional, spiritual health. And of course, we have to close as people are hearing that. We, <laughs> will you come back? Absolutely. We can yes. do so much more. <laughs> <laughs> Ale, we want to thank you for coming in the last 20 seconds. Can you tell people how they can find you? Because I think you're going to be getting some emails and phone calls, sir. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you can reach me at covarubiasconsulting.com. My consulting is Foundations for Hope and Justice Consulting. And really hope that um, I get to come back and do some more conversation and continue to do good work in the mm. world. We hope today, as well as the other ones, have you inspired to recognize classism, to speak up more, to engage other people, to really create true equity in your organization's family systems. Dr. Becky Martinez, Dr. Kathy O'Bear, Transformation Change Radio, we will see you next month. Thank you all for joining. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.